Welcome to the Cover 2 Resources podcast series, a podcast series about addiction and addiction education. My name is Amy McNeil. I lost my brother Samuel to a heroin overdose on October 23rd, 2015. He was 28. As a family, we thought we were prepared to help Sam fight addiction, but we were painfully mistaken. My family founded Cover 2 Resources in memory of Sam. Our mission is to arm others with the knowledge needed to best support a loved one struggling with opioid addiction. The Cover 2 Resources podcast is an ongoing series in which we interview experts in the fight against opioid addiction. It is made possible through donations and sponsorships from concerned individuals or organizations. If you want to help in the fight against opioid addiction, please consider donating or sponsoring the Cover 2 podcast. Go to cover2.org for more information. This podcast is available on iTunes, Google Music, Stitcher, and via RSS feed. Simply search for the full name, Cover 2 Resources, on your platform of choice. Thank you for listening. Hi, this is Greg McNeil, founder of Cover 2 Resources. The U.S. is currently marred in a battle against an ever-growing opioid epidemic, and no place is that epidemic more evident than Ohio. Since 2015, Ohio has led the U.S. in opioid-related deaths, with 4,149 Ohioans dying of drug overdose in 2016, and a 36, excuse me, in 2016 alone, a 36% increase from 2015. Smaller counties, like Ashtabula, have been hit particularly hard in the first half of 2016, seeing as many overdose deaths as the entirety of 2015. Here today to talk about what's being done in their county to address the epidemic is Katie Park. Katie is the Ashtabula County Prevention Coalition Coordinator. So Katie, welcome. Thank you. Matt Butler. Matt is a clinical supervisor from Community Counseling. So Matt, welcome. Thank you. And Jennifer Simpson. Jennifer is also a clinical supervisor, and she's from Signature Health. So Jennifer, thank you. Hello. So let's start off by telling us a little bit about what the three of you have witnessed in your county since the opioid epidemic has descended upon us. Matt, you want to start us off? Sure. I'm glad to. Um, The problem is, you know, as I see it, um, is that this really is impacting everybody. This is impacting everybody in our community. You referred to us as a small county, and that's true population-wise. Geographically, though, we're the biggest county in Ohio. So you have some small population centers um, divided up by a great deal of space. So there are little pockets all over the place, and um, that contributes to a whole lot of smaller, tight-knit communities. And so we um, we see people being dramatically impacted in all those tight little communities by all of the deaths and by all the people that we've lost, especially in the last several years. Um, it's been really rough on, on our county. Jennifer? Well, it has definitely, I echo Matt's sentiment in that it has had a huge impact on Ashtabula County. Um, the face of Ashtabula County has changed a lot over the last five to seven years as um, the drug of choice among populations has changed from meth to opiates. Um, opiates are just a whole different situation compared to what we've looked at in this county treatment-wise in the past. Um, it really has uh, affected us economically. Um, it's hurting businesses. It's hurting government. 
um, and it's, it's hurting families, neighbors, and neighborhoods. Um, it's really been widespread devastation for our population. So Katie, last year you and other Ashtabula County Prevention Coalition coordinators completed a year-long training through the Community Anti-Drug Coalition of America Academy. Can you talk a little bit about what that was like? So the Ashtabula County Prevention Coalition has a Drug-Free Communities Grant, which is a federally funded grant to help us um, do prevention efforts throughout Ashtabula County. To, to receive that grant, we had to go through the National Academy, um, which is a three-week training over the year, um, to basically um, train us in what how a coalition should run and what should be done. And we know that... Um, Local problems require local solutions, and so we need to work within our county um, to to offer those solutions, but also not reinvent the wheel in that process. So it's a lot. It's a lot of um, evaluating what's going on in the community, whether that be through surveys, focus groups, key informant interviews, those types of things, to see what people in our county are saying, um, and what and to help us figure out what we should do with it, what how to use that information. Um, because then we know what the problem is. We know how people are thinking, we know what they're feeling, and we can um, develop our strategies for prevention around what everybody is saying. Instead of just throwing darts at a board and trying to figure out what's gonna work, we know what the issue is. Okay, let's talk about some of the programs that you've started in, in your community. Who would, who would like to go? Katie, you wanna start us off? Sure, um, I, I think that the coalition in general, a lot of our focus has been on increasing awareness, decreasing the stigma of addiction. Um, and so we try to offer a lot of trainings around those things to community groups, to parents. Um, we do some school work. We work with university hospitals, um, which is a large hospital system in Ashtabula County. Um, they offer the Botvin Life Skills Program in our schools to our youth. That doesn't just focus on substance abuse. It focuses on um, making good choices. Um, Making, you know, making good friends, having self-esteem. Um, talks about advertising, how you can't always believe what you hear. Um, so there's a lot of a lot behind that. That's, and it's an evidence-based program. It's one of the strongest evidence-based programs for our youth. Um, so that you know, having those community partners is huge for us. We have a lot of great people at our table that have a lot of um, good information that they continue to share and bring to, to people in our community. So UH sponsors that in the schools? Yes. For what age groups? It starts in, it can start in grades three and it goes through grades 11. Ah. So we are trying to build it, um, we're trying to start in every grade, at, at every third grade level, or at the third grade level in mm -hmm. every school and build onto that every year. So those third graders who had an instructor in third grade will have that same instructor in fourth grade and continue to build that throughout their um, school. Yeah, excellent. So what other programs would um, have, have been working in your communities there that you'd like to talk about? You know, when you think about, okay, we all know that there's so many different facets to this, and there's just a lot to get your arms around. So what we're looking for is a conversation about those that you find that jump out in your minds as being the most successful that you know of. So one thing that we do, like Katie had said, is we do a lot of educational events. Um, I chair the training committee for the Prevention Coalition for several years now. So we've had a very successful opiate summit um, for five years, and this year we've rebranded it as Operation Part. Um, the opiate summit draws... Operation Part? Part, P-A-R-T, for the four things we think are most important. Give Pre us... Prevention, mm -hmm. awareness, recovery, and treatment. 
are the four things that we we're trying to focus on henceforth um, because we think that they all have a role to play. Um, it's easy to say awareness is where it's at and we just need to make everybody aware of the situation and, and tackle the stigma. But we need to look at prevention and on the front end of things and then we need to look at the treatment end of things. And we also need to emphasize the fact that recovery is possible and recovery-oriented lifestyles are all around us all the time. It can get easy to bog down in just the bad stuff and just the deaths and just the losses. Um, so we need to realize that, that it works, um, treatment works, and recovery makes a difference in people's lives. So, so Operation Part, um, this is year six of, of this big event. And if you're talking about a county with a population as small as ours, um, it's really important to us that we get more than 300 folks at this event every year. Uh, we have multiple things like that, but, but this is the biggie, and it's coming up um, at the end of September. Oh, October. October 12th and 13th. So you get over 300 people yeah. to your event? That's a, we do. That's a good-sized event. It is, and especially if you look at similar events in surrounding counties, um, we have folks coming from Pennsylvania. We have folks coming from all over Ohio, Northeast Ohio, for this event. Hmm. We, have we have speakers from Columbus come up on a statewide level to talk about things. Uh, and this year, for, for day one of that, um, we were actually able to get Dr. Bruce Perry, and that plays into the other piece that I was going to talk about with trauma. Dr. Bruce Perry is an internationally known expert in trauma, especially with children. And um, it is my opinion, and it's, it's our opinion, that trauma is really a piece of the puzzle when we're talking about prevention and we're talking about treatment. We're talking about all aspects of this. We need to be able to look at trauma as being an element in people's lives. So when you talk about programs and initiatives, we've done a lot around trauma here. Um, I do a lot... Personally, I'm a regional trainer um, for several initi initiatives related to the justice system and people working in the justice system because I think that if we can broaden the focus of their lens of police officers and correctional officers and probation officers and other people in that system, then we can treat folks with compassion and we can treat folks with an eye to what other factors might go into their life besides just the fact that, that we need to get rid of them and, and stick them in prison. Drug court does a pretty good job of it that, does. doesn't it? I sit on the drug court team. Um, we have a common, we actually have three specialized dockets in Ashtabula County now, and, and I'm a member of all three of those teams. Um, we have a common plea drug court that's been in operation for several years, I think eight or nine years at this point. Do you know exactly, Katie? Sure. Um, we have a mental health court that's just been in operation for a few months, and then we have a family drug court uh, in, in combination with all the treatment agencies in the county. And uh, all of those specialized dockets are a great tool in order to kind of make the blunt instrument of the criminal justice system into a much more sharp edge and a much more specialized tool um, in helping people who are facing this kind of struggle. So, so when we look at the justice system, I think the training that I do with um, folks who work in criminal justice can make a big difference uh, in the epidemic as well. Sure. Especially coming from a prevention standpoint, we mm -hmm. we were a lot with those people who are in recovery, people who are in drug court or have previously been in drug court or just in recovery in general that may have never even gone through drug court. We use them for a lot of our programs um, and speaking to people. You know, one of the biggest lessons that I've learned in coordinating prevention efforts is that, you know, I don't have I don't have a story to tell. I don't have a history of use myself, and so who am I? And so I think that it is so much more impactful for people to see people in recovery, you know, general community members to see people in recovery and hear them tell their stories, especially when you're talking to youth. 
Um, a local judge in our county has started, a, he calls it Life Consequences Program, which goes mm-hmm. along with the Life Skills, the Botvin Life Skills Program, um, where he goes into schools with uh, other judges and the prosecutor and a nurse and um, somebody in recovery who graduated from that specific school mm-hmm. district that can say, I've sat where you sat. I know what you're going through. This, was, this is my story, and I hope that you can learn from it. Um, so I think, you know, finding those people who are in drug court or in recovery um, are very beneficial to have because those are the people that everybody else is going to listen to when, when you're trying to reach out to parents and students about prevention efforts. Um, they're going to listen to those people in recovery much more than they're going to listen to. Very powerful right. when you have someone who's mm-hmm. been there, right. lived that life. Yeah, and, and that's been a piece, it's been a very well-received piece of our opiate summons, uh, a, a recovery panel at the end of the day, letting people see that hope does exist and that there are folks who have um, done well in their recovery and that it's not just about the negative aspects of things. That there, there are people that succeed. And, and so building off of that, uh, several years ago, I started hosting recovery breakfasts at our agency. So on a quarterly basis, we invite a pretty big cross-section of the community in, and we hear stories from people that have succeeded in some aspect of their recovery um, around stigma reduction, around mandated treatment, around specific aspects of recovery in that way. And I think those pull in a, a pretty big cross-section of people from education, from criminal justice. You know, we have judges and county commissioners and and teachers and, and community members and family members and folks in recovery themselves just to try and continue that conversation about how there are positive things happening here and there are things that work here. Continuity. It's, that's really important. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You, yeah. You, you, I think you put really your finger on something that having that reinforcement. So often communities get kind of uh, focused on one event, one big event, mm-hmm. and then they forget about all the reinforcement. Mm-hmm. And, and that has to be tremendously valuable to your community there. How, uh, how often do you do the breakfast? Quarterly. Quarterly. That's uh-huh. fantastic. That's really great. I, I think that uh, it's one of the best received things that I do. And it gives us a chance, you know, when we were only doing that recovery panel on a once yearly basis, you're talking about three or four stories. If I do this, if I do this four times a year, then, then I can get many more folks out there in the public eye and in front of people and in media and, and help to personalize the face of this thing. Um, stigma is just... Stigma destroys um, a lot of the success that people have managed to accomplish, and I think uh, it just plays into so many of the other things that we're talking about. So um, that, that has, a, has a potential to make a difference. So let's get in a little plug for, again, your park, uh, excuse me, part event that's coming oh. up. And that's coming up when? October 12th and 13th. And where would they go to learn about this? AshtabulaMHRSBoard.org. Good. I think, yeah. yes, or, or a Ashtabula, Facebook group. Yeah, if they can, they can Google Ashtabula County Mental Health and Recovery Services Board, and it'll have the information on that website. Outstanding. Great. It's, you know, it's CEUs for teachers and for social workers and counselors and for um, chemical dependency professionals and attorneys and mm-hmm. nurses and pretty much any group that you can provide continuing education credits for. Okay, mm-hmm. and so that's great that it's continuing education mm-hmm. credits also. Mm-hmm. So when's the next breakfast? Where is it? It's going to be November, second Friday in November, our Community Counseling Center, and we're talking about resiliency. Ah. Those factors in folks' lives that, lets them, um, that let them move on from hardship and trauma and addiction and mental health concerns. Um, resiliency is something that has to go along with a conversation about trauma. Mm-hmm. So what are those individual factors for us that let us... Um, bounce back from things in different, to differing degrees. Hmm. 
Okay. Jennifer, I want to turn the mic over to you for a second here. <laughs> Hi there. Hi there. Uh, my specialty is a lot on the treatment end of addiction. So I supervise a team of therapists and case managers. We provide IOP. We provide um, coordination with the uh, medically assisted treatment program. Um, so we see those folks who are heavy into their addiction, but realizing this isn't the life that they want to lead anymore. And we really focus on, okay, let's help you make those changes now in your life. Um, I think one of the really important things that we learn working with adults in addiction is that that's not where the addiction started. The addiction started when they were 10, 11, 12 years old, and they were exposed to it in their homes or in their neighborhoods or at their schools. And at the time, something so inconsequential like sipping beer from, you know, dad's can of beer next to, to the sofa or sneaking a, a, a puff off of Big Brother's marijuana joint those things seemed inconsequential when they were 9, 10, 11 years old. But in retrospect, that was really the beginning of a, a much larger, more devastating pattern in their life. And so that's why we look a lot to the work that's being done by the Prevention Coalition to start talking to kids about addiction early, often, and in an age-appropriate way. So can you speak for a minute, Jennifer, mm -hmm. about the significance of the age in which they start? Sure. Um, there's a couple of things that are really important about the age that somebody starts experimenting with substances. We look at it from a biopsychosocial perspective in treatment. Um, biologically, when a child is 8, 9, 10, 11, 12 years old, there's a lot of things that are happening in their bodies and brains, a lot of growth, a lot of changes. And when they start introducing a substance into their system at that age, it begins to have a profound effect on their physiology for the rest of their lives then meaning that the development of their brains and bodies is permanently altered by that substance experimentation at, su at such a young age. How much experimentation to permanently alter? Any it's a lot. rule of thumb there? I mean, I, I wish it was like we could quanti quantify it and say, okay, up to this amount, you're safe, and past this amount, mm -hmm. you're not safe. The problem is it's a little bit different for everybody. It has to do with how much are you exposed to it, um, how often are you exposed to it? Um, but also the dynamics of the family. Um, you know, if mom and dad are, are not available either through work or addiction or mental illness, um, it's not just the substance in the body that sets somebody up for a later history of addiction. It's also, are they getting enough support? Are they well-fed enough? Are they being supported emotionally? Are they being taught how to manage their, their emotions and their relationships? Um, is there trauma in their history? All of these things really contribute to the potential that later on in life the substance use problem is going to get a lot worse. So, you know, one kid sneaks a little puff of a joint, that's probably not going to be the end of the world. But you have to look at all these other factors in their lives, what is contributing to the whole development of this little human being, this little person, and how many of those factors that are so important for our healthy social and emotional development are being neglected. So that's why even from a very young age, especially through the school system, um, through churches, through community centers, we really need to be talking to kids on a level that they can understand about how their choices at a young age are going to affect them later on. Because kids developmentally, they're not thinking that way. <laughs> you know, At those young ages, even up through their high school years, an adult comes in and tells them, oh, you know, you gotta be careful about drinking because you're gonna fry your brain for when you're a grown up. They're just gonna, they're not gonna be interested in that. But that's why having people who are currently involved in the recovery community talk to these kids is so important because they can really reach them on an individual level and say, hey, 
I know exactly what it's like to be you right now. I know what it's like to be poor, to be picked on at school, to feel isolated, and to know that, hey, when I sneak a beer out of the fridge after school on my way home, or when my parents are away, that makes me feel better. Well, guess what? 20 years down the road, that beer turns into heroin with some fentanyl in it, and life has taken on a whole new set of troubles. So let me tell you how you can avoid being me in the future or doing what I did in the future. And that's a big impact on those kids. And I know that plays directly over into what you were talking with us a little earlier about, Katie, and that is talk early and often to the kids. How do you frame that? How do you begin that process? I think that, and I, a lot of people ask me this question, you, nobody knows your child as well as you do. Mm-hmm. And so I think that you just speak to them on a level that, that they can relate to, that you know that they can relate to, um, and and it, it doesn't always have to be specific to um, substance abuse, but I think that we that parents do need to let their children know what it's what they expect of them. Let them know that they don't um, agree with certain behaviors, or um, the kids need to know that their parents are not that their perception is um, what their perception of, of their use would be, yeah. um, and what's expected of them. Mm-hmm. And that's critical that we get to this generation. We're losing a generation, sadly, and uh, or I should say we've lost a generation. Mm -hmm. And so um, as much as we do to educate and advocate and try and make a difference, the real difference makers are those kids that are coming up today. They're the ones that are going to solve this whole thing. Mm -hmm. So I know, um, Matt, one of the things that you wanted to talk about is the human condition a little bit. Right. And respect. So I, I feel it's, it's vital for us to stop separating us for ourselves from this problem and stop insulating ourselves from this problem and um, stop saying, well, these are, these are folks that are in this specific group or these are folks that live in this area of town or, or these are poor people or these are minorities. Um, and I find that when we do that, it makes it easier for us to stigmatize people. It makes it easier for us to say, well, this isn't my family because... X and Y and Z. I think if we if we recognize and emphasize the fact to people throughout our community and throughout all our communities that these are human beings who are mothers and, and daughters and friends and loved ones and um, people who are vital parts of our community, then it, it forces us all to take a closer look at, at what we can do to make a difference. Instead of saying, well, someone else is going to fix that because that's someone else's problem because that's someone else's family member. I think we need to take the statistics and make them human beings. Jennifer, mm-hmm. one of the biggest mountains that we have to climb with the epidemic is the stigma associated with it. Right, yeah. Give us some insight in terms of best practices, how we might do that as communities. A big part of overcoming stigma about substance use, and it dovetails nicely with the point that Matt was making, which um, is one, we need brave individuals, family, friends, loved ones, and people in addiction themselves who aren't afraid to come forward and say, hey, this happened to me. I was not your typical idea of a, a drug addict or a heroin user, but you know, I got on pain pills from my doctor and next thing I knew, I had a guy that I called off the street. Um, we need people to step forward and talk about these things. We need family members to say, hey, I'm not ashamed. I didn't do anything wrong, but my child still became an addict. And here's what happened to our family. 
So we need folks on the one hand who um, are going to shake off that stigma and step forward and say, this happened to me. But we also need to come together then as a community and support those people who are brave enough to say, this is really happening and it's happening to everybody. So it's not just about our own experiences, but it's about the experiences of our neighbors, of our friends, of our family members, and coming together as a community to find each other and say, hey, I support you. I don't blame you. I may not understand this whole addiction thing. I may not, you know, know the best way to go about dealing with it, but I hear your story and I support your efforts to do something about it. And I'm here for you if you need me. So for me, that that sense of community and supporting those brave folks who step forward and talk about this problem are the two biggest factors to overcoming the stigma that's still associated with substance use. Katie, time to talk about final thoughts about addressing the opioid epidemic in Ashtabula. Going off what Jennifer had said earlier, I think that when we talk about um, building assets in our kids and, and giving our kids what they need to succeed, um, I don't know if you've ever heard of the Swiss cheese model of addiction, but it's basically... Um, I have not. It's a model that actually, it's, it's Swiss cheese. It's different slices of Swiss cheese, and where the holes are in that Swiss cheese are the risks that a child may have, whether it's early onset of use, um, genetic predisposition to, mm-hmm. to addiction, um, just having having the wrong friends. It could be anything. Anywhere that those holes are, are the risks. And where those holes line up, that's where addiction slips through. So as a community, we need to step up. You know, when, when you're talking, when you're talking about treatment, you're talking about professionals and, and prevention is really a community-oriented mm-hmm. thing. And so we need to step up as a community to make sure that our youth that we're decreasing those risks in our youth, that we're doing whatever we can possibly do um, for our youth to decrease those risks, whether it be, um, we we look at the fact that um, the social-emotional connections that we've had, that we have with our, you know, it's not as strong as it was 40 years ago. You know, we look at our family systems and um, youth used to have, you know, four adults that they could go to for anything that they needed. But um, that's now switched. For every four children, there's one adult they can go to where it used, used to, be to be the flipped. other way around. Uh, You're right. Okay. Um, and just mm-hmm. even our use of technology. You know, we don't have the, the social-emotional connection in general anymore because we're always texting and emailing. And um, So I think that we need to really reach out to our youth more than, than we think is necessary or that they think is necessary because you know, a lot of youth don't want to talk face-to-face. They'd rather text sitting next to mm-hmm. each other. But I think all of that has something to do with where we are now um, with this drug crisis we're in. I think it's all built on, built on that. No doubt. Well, I want to thank you all for joining me today. This has uh, offered a great deal of insight in terms of the things that you're doing to make a difference in, uh, in Ashtabula County. And uh, I, uh, it sounds as though you're making a big difference. Um, a lot of education going on there, which is tremendous. We've been joined today by Katie Park, Katie is the Ashtabula County Prevention Coalition Coordinator, Uh, Matt Butler, who is the Clinical Supervisor for Community Counseling, and Jennifer Simpson, who is also a Clinical Supervisor over at Signature Health. My name is Greg McNeil. I'm the founder of Cover 2 Resources. Thank you for joining us for this Cover 2 PPT podcast. That's people, places, and things making a difference in the opioid epidemic. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the Cover 2 Resources podcast. 
This episode is a production of Cover 2 Resources and is made possible by listeners like you. With your support, the Cover 2 team can continue to research and broadcast these resources to others in need. If you'd like to donate or to sponsor a future podcast, please visit cover2.org. As always, thank you for listening. Together, we can make a difference in the opioid epidemic, one life at a time.